Sri Damodar Janani by Shivaram Swami Chapter 9 Krishna Remembers Kuvera's Sons Krishna Stu Kriyakriyeshu Vyagrayam Matari Prabhu Adrakshid Arjuna Purvam Guyako Dhanandanatmajo While Mother Yashoda was very busy with household affairs, the Supreme Lord Krishna observed twin trees known as Yamala Arjuna, which in former millennium had become demigod sons of Kuvera. Srimad Bhagavatam 10.9.22 Entering her apartment, Yashoda Devi spoke to her entourage of friends. Look at this mess, my rascal son's morning antics. The village ladies scanned the devastation with wide-eyed amazement. How could a little boy cause such chaos? He is really a rascal. Very much so. I cannot believe this. But he is the sweetest rascal in Goku. And the most mysterious. Whatever else he may be, he is a rascal, said Yashoda, trying to hide her pride. Wiping her hand in her skirt, she added, Not only must I clean up after him, but I must also catch up on the many duties that were delayed because of his nonsense. O oh, queen, we will clean up the spilt yogurt while you and your maidservants attend to your chores. Looking around the other rooms, while thinking of many ways to serve her son, Yashoda sighed with pleasure. They're endless. There's no end to this housework. Mother Yashoda was the very form of loving service, and as such, whatever housework she did was for her son. Thus, her activities of cooking, washing, and churning butter were a perfection that was beyond the reach of Vaikuntha's residence, and her absorption in such chores far surpassed the samadhi of the most accomplished yogi. Yashoda Devi's ever-waking moment was an absorption in spontaneous loving service to the unlimited Supreme Lord, who had appeared in Gokul as her son. Because they were her eternal dharma, there was no end to her chores. Moreover, what to material vision would appear to be ordinary duties of a household wife were, to divine vision, the object of unending praise for great demigods and perfected devotees. Because of the eminence of service to him, Madhya Yashoda had left Krishna, whom she loved more than life to serve him. O queen, said one of the women, do you think it wise to leave Damodar alone tied to that mortar? Yashoda cast a glance in the direction of the courtyard. He is not alone, but in the company of his friends. They are looking after him. Another gopi added, and he is in the courtyard nearby, both within eyesight and earshot. Besides, Yashoda Devi smiled, he is tied to the mortar. I cannot imagine that he could untie himself or move the mortar. A dear friend agreed, impossible. I think he is safe where he is. But some friends were not so certain. Are you sure? You just spent all morning trying to tie him down. What makes you think that he is so easily restrained? Yashoda Devi remained unperturbed. Cast aside your fears far away. We can hear any disturbance he makes. Additionally, 
His friends will let us know if he misbehaves again. But if he thinks he can free himself, then let him try, let him try. And outside the courtyard, Krishna was trying. His mother's final words to him were still ringing in his ears, riling his ire. My dear boy, your whimsical conduct has now come to an end. If you think you are so clever, then free yourself of this rope. Go ahead, pull the mortar behind you, and go wherever you like. Damodar fumed, and to the delight of his friends, he was pulling the mortar. But where would he go, aware that his mother could easily hear the gopas' cheers? Krishna placed a forefinger to his lips to calm them. To contemplate how he could give vent to his anger, Krishna abruptly sat down on the ground while his friends amused themselves nearby. Nandatila sloped gently off to the Yamuna, whose shimmering waters worshipped Krishna with soft beams of radiance. The caress of the autumn breezes was a massage that stroked his tired limbs and a bouquet of blossoming flowers, remedial herbs for his aching feet, and the chirping of birds, wise counsel for his ruffled mind. In these moments during which Krishna took pleasure in the beauty of Vrindavan, his anger abated. But when he felt the rope around his belly, his mind became, his mind again became perturbed. Mother said, I should free myself if I could. But I cannot. She has bound me with the knots of love. How can I possibly undo them? Such an act would be contrary to everything I stand for. I can never free myself from the love of my devotees. As Krishna was thinking in this way, his pastime potency covered him, and he again thought of getting free. Frustrated that he could not, he punched the ground with his fists. Anger welled up in his mind, and a divine ignorance spread through his being, blackening his already dark complexion. With reddish eyes, Krishna scoured the surroundings until two stately Arjuna trees again caught his gaze. They stood proudly by the gate of Nanda Maharaj's estate. Recognizing the trees as two celestials that had been cursed by Narada Muni, Krishna admired their majestic foliage, lush with leaves, flowers, and fruits. Although the trees had been standing for many years, they had been recently named Arjuna trees after Krishna's Gopa friend Arjuna, because they appeared like twins, Yamala, two trunks sharing the same roots. The Brajbasis called them Yamala Arjunas. Krishna had never been close to them, but he had often gazed at them from the palace. Some Brajbasis called the trees Gopasakas, because they were friends to the cowherd community, offering them bounty without asking anything in return. Standing side by side, these trees look like magnificent kings who distributed charity freely or like heavenly-laden clouds that made no distinction where to shower their life-giving waters. Despite their grandeur, the trees were shackled in place by their roots. I am just like those trees, thought Damodar, bound. Now I know how conditioned souls feel, constrained as they are by the ropes of material nature. Perhaps if I perform the good deed of freeing those trees, I, in turn, shall be freed from this mortar. Continuing to think in this way, Krishna simultaneously exhibited two contradictory natures. 
He was an angry boy who had been unjustly punished, and the omniscient Lord was planning how to liberate the trees. The demigods overheard were wonderstruck at this extraordinary conduct, having recognized earlier that they were privileged to witness a very special pastime. They knew better than to question what they were seeing. With folded hands they praised Krishna. Prabhu, Prabhu. Yes, although tied to a mortar and angry with his mother, Krishna was still Prabhu, the master of all energies, of all beings, of all circumstances. Yet aside from his mind-boggling deeds, he continued to appear like a three-year-old. While continuing to eye the two Arjuna trees swaying in the wind, Krishna hatched a plan by which to further expand his pastimes and please his devotees. By tying me up with her love, mother has put me into her debt. I must repay her. Perhaps liberating those two trees will be a start. In this way, Krishna revealed a further truth about himself. While he is bound by the love of his devotees, he continues to give liberation to others. Krishna is the exclusive son of Mother Shoda, and for her, he is a naughty little boy. As far as others are concerned, he is the supreme lord, possessed of unlimited powers and might. Now, while acting as Damodar, Krishna was invoking his godly powers to liberate the demigods trapped in the Arjuna trees. These demigods were formerly the twin sons of the treasure of the heavens, Kuvera. And their names were Nalukuvara and Manigriva. Now embodied as Arjuna trees, they had become purified by many years of suffering, but more so by contacting the earth of Gokul and the people of Raja. And when from their vantage point they saw Krishna crawling in their courtyard, the desire for pure devotion arose. Krishna remembered these demigods' past lives, the events that led to their meeting Narada, and the curse that brought them to Raja as trees. In appearance, he looked like one of his boyfriends, but as the all-cognizant lord, he recalled every detail of Nalukuvara and Manigriva's history. The sons of Kuvera, these young men naturally lived a carefree life of opulence and sense enjoyment. Unlike their father, who dutifully managed the wealth of both demigods and men, Nalukuvara and Manigriva squandered their time, loitering on the Chaitratra garden. Intoxicated, they plundered the wealth of that garden, whose trees sprouted jewel leaves and bore beautiful maidens as their fruit. Decorating themselves with jewels and enjoying these young girls, Nalukuvara and Manigriva spent their time in a drunken stupor, not with not a single care for others. When Kuvera once performed austerities to please Lord Shiva, he and his family were rewarded with the status of demigod. Unfortunately, the accompanying prestige not only increased his son's opulence, but also their arrogance. Thus Manigriva and Nalukuvara were always doubly intoxicated by Vruni drink and by false pride. They thought... We are the sons of King Kuvera and the favorites of Lord Shiva. Who dares to oppose us? In this way, Manigriva and Nalukuvara exhibited the disposition of demigod worshippers who were bewildered by the trappings of their worship. Moreover, the brothers subsequently neglected all proper conduct, what to speak of service to the Supreme Lord. Having gained access to Lord Shiva's Mount Kailash, the twins, 
who were always eager for enhanced sense pleasure, sought out celestial gardens decorating the banks of the Mandakini Ganges. Now privileged demigods, they abandoned their previous girlfriends and sought out more attractive apsaras of heaven with whom they wandered through the flower gardens in an intoxicated state. Sometimes they drank a liquor from Varuna's abode and sometimes a beverage from the churning of the milk ocean. Whatever they consumed, the resultant conduct was always self-indulgent narcissism. On one such occasion, Manigriva and Nalukuvara were enjoying with their Apsar admirers within the lotus-crowded waters of the Ganges. The lotuses were of every color and description, and their aroma attracted swarms of bees and birds whose combined songs mixed with the laughter and merriment of the twins and their women. Due to arrogance, the demigods had abused the privilege granted them by Lord Shiva and committed the offense of using a sacred place for sense gratification. Being in an intoxicated state, bathing naked, and indulging in sex are all offenses to Ganga Devi. As drunks often do, the two men sang songs of pleasure and goaded their consorts to do the same. Thus, the usually sacred atmosphere of Mount Kailash was spoiled by their ribald sounds and licentious acts. Krishna thought, Generally, people go to the Ganges to be purified of the effects of sinful life, but these two foolish men were sinning in the divine waters of the Ganges. Thus, the purification they derived from such bathing was minimal and incidental. There being no other way for their deliverance, all-knowing Narada Muni, who always desires the ultimate welfare of all living beings, decided to go there. Narada thought, Since even pious acts like bathing in the Ganges will not purify these fools, let me give them the irrepressible seed of devotional service. Without notice, Narada suddenly appeared where the devas were reveling. Although he was as effulgent as a second son, in their drunken stupor, Nalukuvara and Manigriva did not notice him. Narada was dressed in deerskin, and the radiance of his fair complexion was surpassed only by his golden, matted locks. He rested his vena on his shoulder, and although walking, his feet never touched the ground. Famous as the foremost devotee and the greatest scholar of devotion, Narada was also well-versed in other branches of the Vedas, as well as their practical application. He was a professor of the Puranas, history, logic, and morality. In short, he possessed full knowledge of the truths of creation and that which existed eternally beyond it. He was eloquent, resolute, intelligent, and blessed with a powerful memory. And while he was always absorbed in singing the glories of the Lord, he also had an interest in military science. Thus, in addition to being learned in every branch of devotional music, Narada was also versed in the six sciences of treaty, war, military campaigns, restraining the enemy, and strategies for ambush and retreat. But this time Narada Muni was not thinking of martial arts. He was absorbed in thoughts of Krishna's pastimes. Overcome by ecstasy, he was singing songs in praise of the compassion that Krishna shows even to demons who attempted to harm him. And the ecstasy that Narada felt so submerged him in Krishna's compassion that tears of joy flowed down his cheeks as he sang,
sakato pravitha yadringa tantara tatena dvivi sprishova unmulanam bhavyam there's no doubt about Lord Krishna's being the Supreme Lord. Otherwise, how was it possible for him to kill a giant demon like Putana when he was just on the lap of his mother? To overturn a cart with his legs when he was only three months old? To uproot a pair of Arjun trees so high they touched the sky when he was only crawling? All these activities are impossible for anyone other than the Lord himself. Recognizing Nalukuvara and Manigriva, Narada foresaw that he was destined to participate in the very pastime of which he sang. Krishna's supreme compassion stirred the heart of Narada, who then mercifully thought, How can I deliver these fools and give them a taste of real nectar? The nectar of meeting Krishna. Narada was a first-class devotee, a Bhagavatutama. Demigods and demons alike acknowledged that he had crossed far beyond the shore of the Vedas. Thus, with his unfathomable wisdom, Narada decided to bless the foolish Nalukuvara and Manigriva. These demigods have fallen from the mode of goodness and are no better than low-class guhyakas. Although the intoxication of wine wears off with time, the intoxication of pride does not. If I simply bless them with good fortune of pure devotion, they will flaunt it. I must first curb their pride, and when that has been achieved, then they will be eligible for bhakti. Therefore, I will curse them. As Krishna recalled Narada's decision to curse Nadakuvara and Manigriva, he smiled. Such is the causeless mercy of a Vaishnava. His curse counteracts offenses and the subsequent purification enables the curse to see me. Fixed in his determination, Narada came closer to the sporting demigods lost to wanton abandon. Embracing and kissing the girls, they are enjoying in the river and the way of bull elephants and their wives, and so remain oblivious to Narada's presence. But the more sober Apsaras notice him, the naked girls immediately cover themselves with their long hair, and wading to the shore they hastily dressed while urging their lovers to do the same o oh, prabhus dress quickly put on your clothes lest this great sage curse us all nalukuvara and manigriva were too intoxicated to hear or understand and even if they had they were too proud to be goaded by anyone the girls panic quickly come to shore and dress but the men simply taunted the girls and in their stupor they began to splash each other, joking. Quickly dress, quickly dress! Narada's anger rose, and he thought of the subsequent Krishna's pastimes and resolved that these two would serve the Lord. The sage could envisage the courtyard of Nandamaraj and these two demigods standing there as large trees. By cursing Nalukuvara and Manigriva, he would be an instrument of the Lord's mission. Yet he was hesitant. It would be an offense on my part to curse demigods, yet I am helpless in the greater plan of the Lord. Moreover, if I curse them, they will benefit by getting the direct vision of Lord Krishna. What could be more auspicious than that? 
Child Krishna was pleased with Narada's humility. Although the sage was acting as his instrument, Narada was concerned not to offend even fallen devotees. The Lord thought, Sometimes when a father wants to feed his sleeping son sweet rice, he has to pinch the boy to wake him. Similarly, Narada, cursing the demigods, would bring them to their senses. That curse, therefore, would be a blessing in disguise, for it would result in the greatest auspiciousness for the cursed. From the story of Narada's curse, devotees in the future will recognize the dangers of bad association, which can bewilder even the devas. Devotees will learn the inestimable value of a moment's association with a pure devotee. Krishna nodded his head with satisfaction. Seeing Krishna's gesture, the cowherd boys raised their eyes, whispering, I wonder what he is thinking. Me too, and me. Krishna was contemplating the very picture of compassion, Narada Muni, standing above the sons of Kuvera, his brows knitted with displeasure, his heart bleeding with sympathy for their fallen state. Narada thought, if I just curse them, they will continue to remain in a state of ignorance. Let me therefore speak some words of truth which will enlighten them and give them food for thought as they live out the duration of the curse. By this time, the effects of the Varuni had begun to wear off, and Nalakuvara and Manigriva were coming to their senses. Aware of their nakedness in the presence of an angry sage, and finally seeing the Apsara's warnings behind Narada, the demigods raised their folded hands. Speechless and fearful, they waited to hear Narada's words, too ashamed to say anything themselves. Narada wanted to point out the handicap of opulence to which Nalakuvara and Manigriva were addicted, and which inspired the cardinal sins, lust for women, wine, and gambling. He said, Of all the attractions of material enjoyment, the attraction of riches bewilders one's intelligence more than having beautiful bodily features, taking birth in an aristocratic family, and being learned. When one is uneducated but falsely puffed up by wealth, the result is to engage one's wealth in enjoying wine, women, and gambling. As demigods, Manigriva and Nalukavara should have been cultivating the mode of goodness and elevating themselves by control of the mind. But the allurement of their father's wealth led them to the mode of passion and the sinful conduct associated with it. And now they are in ignorance. The root of sin is intimate contact with women. Worse than that is gambling, for it results in quarrel and loss. Worse than gambling is intoxication, because through it one loses interest in protecting the body. Narada continued, Unable to control their senses, rascals who are falsely proud of their riches, or their birth in aristocratic families become extremely cruel to maintain their perishable bodies, which they think will never grow old or die, they kill poor animals without mercy, and sometimes kill animals merely to enjoy an excursion. When bewildered by such debauchery, eating meat and killing animals, fools forget that the Lord is witness to such sins, and that he quickly meets out a corresponding punishment. Although such rascals fancy themselves ageless and deathless, they themselves become a victim of violence and death. Pointing to the man, Narada said, While living, one may be proud of one's body, thinking oneself a very big man, minister, president, or even demigod. 
whatever one may be, after his death, this body will turn either into worms, stool, or ashes. If one kills poor animals to satisfy the temporary whims of this body, one does not know that he will suffer in the next birth, for such a sinful miscreant must go to hell, suffer the results of his actions. Narada chuckled at the irony of it. Although people daily see old age and death, still they think they will never die, but they will. And when they do, they will have to visit the hellish planets to suffer for their foolishness. Meanwhile, the bodies they cherish so much will become the stool of worms or the ashes of fire. Deliverance from such a fate is possible only by the guidance of a real guru. Still pointing at the two drunks, Narada asks rhetorical questions to instruct them. While alive, does this body belong to its employer, to the self, to the father, the mother, or to the mother's father? Does it belong to the person who takes it away by force, to the slave master who purchases it, or to the sons who burn it in the fire? Or, if the body is not burned, does it belong to the dogs that eat it? Among the many possible claimants, who is the rightful one not to ascertain this, but to instead maintain the body by sinful activities is not good. This body is produced by the unmanifested nature and again annihilated and merged in the natural elements. Therefore, it is the common property of everyone. Under circumstances, who but a rascal claims this property as his own? And who but a rascal commits the sin of killing animals to satisfy his whims? Unless one is a rascal, one cannot live in that way. Narada looked intently at Nulukavara and Manigriva. Did they understand that their bodies were not theirs, and that their true identity was spiritual, and that they were distinct from their bodies? No. Had they known, they would have not killed innocent creatures for the pleasures of the hunt and burnt flesh. For the pleasures of the hunt and burnt flesh are remained steeped in ignorance arising from the excesses of wealth. To awaken the brothers from their stupor, Narada then lay bare the future awaiting them. It would be a painful future, but an effective remedy for their conceit. Atheistic fools and rascals who are very much proud of wealth fail to see things as they are. Therefore, returning them to poverty is the proper ointment for their eyes so that they may see things as they are. At least a poverty-stricken man can realize how painful poverty is, and therefore he will not want others to be in a painful condition like his own. Just as there is medication for every disease, there is a solution for every misconduct, and the solution for those blinded by wealth is poverty. This is the principle of Nidhana Viparaya Nyaya. The cure is the opposite of the cause. Evidence for this rectification process can be seen in the general conduct of those who were once poor and who later became affluent. They do all kinds of relief work for the benefit of the less fortunate. By seeing their faces, one whose body has been pricked by pins can understand the pain of others who are pinpricked. Realizing this pain is the same for everyone, he does not want others to suffer in this way. But one who has never been pricked by pins cannot understand this pain. It is said that those who have experienced pain can appreciate real pleasure, but those who have never experienced pain do not know what it really is. These truths of nature are exemplified by two sayings. 
The happiness of wealth is enjoyable by a person who has tasted the distress of poverty. And a woman who has not given birth to a child cannot understand the pain of childbirth. Narda went on to extol the benefits of poverty, following the principle of Dharidya Doshoguna Rashinashi, which means that poverty destroys one's pride in his birth, education, and beauty, making a pauper a candidate for liberation. The sage said, A poverty-stricken man must automatically undergo austerities and penances because he does not have the wealth to possess anything. Thus his false prestige is vanquished. Always in need of food, shelter, and clothing, he must be satisfied with what is obtained by mercy of providence. Undergoing such compulsory activities is good for him because this purifies him and completely frees him from false ego. While a yogi must undergo hard austerities in sadhana to become free of pride, a pauper automatically becomes prideless. What has he to be proud of? For this reason, some say that poverty is the best kind of austerity. Reflecting on the benefits of poverty, Narada added, Always hungry, longing for sufficient food, a poverty-stricken man gradually becomes weaker and weaker. Having no extra potency, his senses are automatically pacified. A poverty-stricken man, therefore, is unable to perform harmful, envious activities. In other words, such a man automatically gains the results of austerities and penances adopted voluntarily by saintly persons. To mitigate sufferings arising from hunger, the pauper gives up all interests in the taste of food and other sense objects, which in effect result in sense control. And when the senses are under control, he abandons violence against others for the sake of sense gratification. Thus, while pride and wealth leads to loss of sense control, and therefore to violence, poverty leads to control of the senses and cessation of all forms of violence. Narada Muni was a living example of these principles. In his last life, he was a son of a poverty-stricken maidservant, and so he knew what hunger was. But he had been fortunate. He was able to serve and hear from traveling mendicants, who would offer him the remnants of their meals. Speaking from experience, he recalled the greatest asset the poor have over the rich. They are receptive to the association of great souls, which makes their path to perfection unobstructed. Saintly persons may freely associate with those who are poverty-stricken, but not with those who are rich. A poverty-stricken man, by association with saintly persons, very soon becomes disinterested in material desires, and hence dirty things within the core of his heart are cleansed away. Inspired to glorify Vaishnavas, Narada added, Saintly persons, sadhus, think of Krishna 24 hours a day. They have no other interests. Why should people neglect the association of such exalted personalities and try to associate with materialists, most of whom are proud and rich non-devotees? At the name-giving ceremony of his son, Nanda Maharaj told the sage Garga, Mahad, Vichalanam rhinam grihinam dinachetasam. Saintly persons move from one place to another only for the sake of poor-hearted grihastas. Despite such blessings, the wealthy are rarely as open to receive saints as the poor. And so the latter gain an eternal benefit that the former cheats himself of. By Vaishnava association, the poor are quickly freed of lingering material desires and purified the advance in devotional life. One may ask, 
Will the wealthy ever get devotee association? The answer is that prosperity is not an automatic spiritual disqualification. If wealthy people are devoid of pride and subsequently show respect to Vaishnavas, then they are eligible for mercy. Like the poor, devotees have no possessions. So when they go to the home of a rich man, it is not to receive money, but to give mercy. However, if rich men are proud and arrogant, impervious to divine grace, devotees will neglect them in favor of the more qualified. Narada thought, All glories to those of pure conduct, peaceful hearts, knowledge of the truth, and love for Lord Krishna. All glories to the Vaishnavas. Nalakubara and Manigriva knew that they were about to be cursed. Silently lamenting their lot, with bloodshot eyes they pleaded for clemency. Narada wished them well, but his idea of blessing was different from that of the drunks. Narada wanted to bring Nalukuvara and Manigriva to pure devotion through poverty, and to that end he would curse them. He was not about to pardon them so that they could continue a life of debauchery and violence. Still dwelling on Krishna's childhood pastime and the greatness of Vaishnavas, the sage thought, There is no greater gift than the direct association of a lord. I will give that gift to these rascals, although they are not eager for it. Narada remember how Parikshit Maharaj appreciated hearing about the lord. What then to speak of seeing him? The king had said, Yena yena vatarena bhagavan hari ishvara karoti karna ramayani mano gyani chana prabhu yachinvato pati aratrichishna satvam chasudyati acharena pumsa bhakti harau tat purushe chasakyam tat eva haram vadi Hearing about the Lord, full of pristine qualities, destroyer of suffering, attractor of the senses, through his appearance, causes pleasure to the ears, attraction to the mind, destroys interest in topics of, and thirst for material enjoyment, and awakens prema for the all-attractive Lord, as it does friendship with devotees. Speaking aloud, as if addressing all those within earshot, Narada said, Therefore, since these two persons drunk with liquor named Varuni are Madhvi and unable to control their senses, have been blinded by pride of celestial opulence, and have become attached to women, I shall relieve them of their false prestige. While the future may look back on Narada and wonder, why would a saintly person take revenge on offenders? Narada's punishment was not revenge. As a transcendentalist, he was beyond such petty conduct. Rather, his curse was a well-considered blessing meant to direct Nalukuvara and Manigriva back to Godhead. Had Narada simply bestowed a fool's mercy on the brothers and pardoned them, they would have returned to their evil ways. And what if he did not? They still would have remained karma mishra bhaktas, mixed devotees inclined to sense gratification. Narada's curse gave them the opportunity to become pure devotees and go back to Godhead. Therefore, his curse was fully justified, for it was for Nalukuvada's and Manigriva's ultimate benefit. Finally, Narada pronounced the terms of the curse. Speaking to a wider audience that included the Apsaras, forest creatures, and foliage, Narada said, 
These two young men are the sons of the great demigod Cuvera. But because of false prestige and addiction to liquor, like trees, they become so fallen that they cannot even understand their nakedness. Since they are behaving like trees, these two young men should receive bodies of trees. This will be the proper punishment. Nonetheless, after they become trees, and until they are released from their confinement, by my mercy they will have remembrance of their past sinful activities. Moreover, by my special favor, after the expiry of one hundred years, by the measurements of the demigods, they will be able to see the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Vasudev, face to face, and thus revive their real position as devotees. When Nalukubara and Manigriva first realized that Narada was angry at them, they remained proud and indignant. What is offense of being naked in front of a Brahmana? It is nothing. But as Narada pronounced his curse, they received a just answer to their challenge. In one sense, they were relieved. It could have been worse. They could have become demons, as had other demigods like the king of the Vidyadharas, Chichiketu, whom Parvati Devi had transformed into a hideous-looking demon. But Narada considered that Nalukuvara and Manigriva's brazen nakedness was not solely their ignorance, but also their pride. Therefore, their punishment as trees was balanced. Moreover, Narada wanted them to advance spiritually, and so, unlike other trees, these two would be fully conscious of their past offenses, and of Narada's teachings, and of their surroundings. In that way, their progress to pure devotion would be unimpeded. Narada thought, I cannot give them a curse that does not result in bhakti. That would be my offense. As Narada was voicing his curse, Nalukubara and Manigriva expressed one request. Somehow, by past piety, and by the presence of Narada, a spark of sanity had ignited their consciousness. With folded hands they begged, O Lord, your punishment is suitable. However, if we must become trees, please allow one concession. Narada nodded. Allow us to take birth in the holy land of Vrindavan, by drinking the Yumuna water, by standing in Vraja's soil, and by being in the company of desire trees, we can obtain the seed of pure devotion. Narada was pleased, smiling. He completed the curse. They would get more than they had requested. Krishna was to appear on earth after another 20,000 earth years. They would stand in Vrindavan until then. And after witnessing Krishna's pastime, as an infant, the Lord would personally deliver those trees from the curse. Tatashtu, so be it. Before the Apsara's unbelieving eyes, Nalukuvara and Manigriva disappeared from Kailash and appeared in a faraway Gokul as twin saplings. As extra mercy, they became Arjuna trees, sharing the name of one of Krishna's friends, thinking, we are followers of Arjuna Gopa. Their pure devotion began. Narada turned towards the Apsaras who were cowering together in fear. Are we next? No, Narada simply gave them a warning glance. Although they had also behaved indecently, they had shown shame and remorse. The sage would let their fate unfold, having seen and heard Narada, the seed of devotion planted in their hearts, and eventually they would excel as Vaishnavis among celestials. His mission in Kailash completed, Narada departed for Vaikuntha. 
There he would beg the Lord to forgive him for cursing servants of Lord Shiva and request the Lord to make his curse come true. But then, feeling ashamed of what he had done, he decided against meeting the Lord directly, and changing course, Narada went to Bhadrik Ashram instead. There he would disclose his heart and mind to his guru, Narayan Rishi. Such is the conduct of a pure Vaishnava. Although acting as an instrument of the Lord, he still feels guilty for cursing someone who more than deserves it. Sitting a little apart from his friends, and absorbed in remembering Narada's adventures, Krishna nodded his head in acknowledgement of the sage's words and deeds. Out of loud he said, Tatashtu, so be it. The gopas nearby looked at each other. So be what? I don't know, 